Hello and welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Kristen Brace to discuss her lovely book of poems, Toward the Wild Abundance. Thanks for tuning in. Toward the Wild Abundance received the Wheelbarrow Books Prize for Poetry from the Center for Poetry at the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities here at MSU in 2018. In her introduction to the volume, the contest's judge, Sarah Bagby, says the book conjures emotions initiated by the frailty and wonder of our lives. These kaleidoscopic poems also shine brilliance on themes of memory and the passage of time. They fluidly transport us from past to present and into the imagination to pose questions about how our experiences inform identity and meaning. The book is full of light, paintings, flowers, and quiet moments of reflection. In the words of Jack Riddle, Toward the Wild Abundance is an elegantly down-to-earth collection that longs for lives where we love wastefully and stand in awe. Kristen Brace writes poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction. She's the author of the poetry chapbooks Fence, Patio, Blessed Virgin, and Each Darkness Inside. Brace earned her MFA in writing from Spalding University, and her work has appeared in journals such as Fiction Southeast, Waterstone Review, and The Other Journal. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and share some of your poems and discuss your book. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited about... Um, the interesting way in which reading the book has resonated in the current moment that we're in. So I've obviously been reading your book um, during the COVID-19 pandemic when we're all trapped inside of our houses and trying to find ways to distract ourselves. And I couldn't help but notice how much your work, um, which deals a lot with domesticity and memory of spaces like houses and the places where we live, has a different resonance now that we're all thinking about the domestic space as something different. Um, I wonder how have how have you been thinking about poetry in this moment? I think for me, uh, maybe less than the thinking about the the spaces that we're currently in. I'm thinking of poetry as a way of connecting, since we're all so isolated right now. You know, we're all in the world of FaceTime and Zoom and Google Hangouts and. So just being able to read a poem and say, yes, I resonate with that experience or, wow, I've never thought about life in that way um, has been really special. And being able to, um, I'm part of a poetry group, so we'll send poems back and forth to each other. And so then you're connecting not only with the, the content of the poem and in a certain way, the poet, but also with whoever you share that poem with. So I think poetry is always vital, but um, in times when we're, we're facing a crisis, it's even more so. It has been sort of validating to see, you know, up until this happened, there was some talk about poetry as a resurgent art form, the idea that more people are turning to poetry for the reasons that you describe, that more poetry is being produced now than ever before. But it didn't feel to me like it was making... Uh, any traction in the wider culture until all of a sudden this happened and you have people who are, you know, oh, I'm going to write my book that I've always wanted to write, or they're doing Google Hangouts where they're reading each other poems every evening. This sort of way that the form has flourished when we suddenly have time and space in our lives and are longing for that kind of connection that you're talking about. Yeah, it's been interesting for me too, just um, thinking about structuring my days differently and getting to my desk a little more often 
and just making that space. And I think, I think it's freed me up a little bit to write, um, write fresh work and write in a way that kind of like, well, this is sort of a whole new territory that we're entering collectively, but I'm here by myself. How am I dealing with it? And then uh, kind of letting the, the words ripple out from there. I've been enjoying, I have a friend who does online workshops and she's been doing some writing prompts regularly. And that has been really a cool experience too, because it, it's all these kind of sideways uh, entering ideas or or prompts that I wouldn't have thought of myself and then it's bringing up all these things that maybe have been kind of latent or you know I've been too busy to think about um, but there there's time now for them to surface so with all of the horrible things happening I guess on a creative level and in certain ways it's um, it's it's making space for new new work to show up one of the things that you said in your response, I think, really resonates with the poems in Toward the Wild Abundance, because you say that you're sort of developing new ways of making space or making time or seeing things differently. A lot of the poems here are reflections on what happens when a space changes or when you look at a space from a different point of view. This would be a good time, I think, to hear looking at rooms upside down. Yeah, definitely. Looking at rooms upside down. Sometimes I do it when I flip my hair over my head, twist and coil the silky snake of it into a bun. Sometimes I hang my aching head over the edge of the bed, and all I see are stripes. As a child, I wandered the house with a hand mirror under my chin, letting feet memories guide me through rooms while my mind walked the world of the ceiling. How spacious that world, how free with its air and light. The windows stretched wider, and every animate thing felt curious. Not to the touch, but rather, it seemed each object had feelings, keen insight into the absurdity of the world as we know it, said, this is the world right side up. Welcome, you found us out. Better versions of all of us, or a different us altogether, must occupy those ceiling chairs, their pillows staying put through pure desire. Sometimes a voice, look out, and I'd narrowly miss the half wall breaking the family room, feet scuffing carpet, mind skating the blank space above, now below. Light glinted off the mirror. In the flash, a disembodied torso might appear, or wrong way arms, thumbs dumbly frozen in a false thumbs up. Plants were like wishes, hovering just above the floor, never getting too comfortable. And I was nobody, nothing, a face behind a mirror in a made-up world. And that made me magic and real. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. One thing I want to ask about right away is houseplants, because there's a lot of vegetation in the book. Uh, and I've seen and heard you say in other interviews that you have an interest in houseplants. I do. I'm a little bit obsessed. I am sitting amongst, mm, I don't know, about six or seven plants just like on my desk and near my desk right now. And actually my, my phone to do this interview is propped up against a bunch of little seedlings that I started for the garden. So I've got sweet peas and beets and uh, I think that's cauliflower poking their little faces up. But I don't know. I think it just kind of runs in the family. My mom always had plants. My grandma had a green thumb. 
And then once you start growing them, it's like, ooh, I can propagate this one. I can get this from a friend. And they kind of take on a life and stories of their own. Yeah. The idea that they become abundant, right? I've had that experience with keeping plants around where you sort of have that, oh, I could do a cutting and then I could um, plant it in another pot and move it into this room. I've got a spider plant that I've propagated a whole bunch of times. So my house is just packed with all of these spider plants. Yes. And there's something so comforting about like feeling like the barriers are impermanent between the house and the world outside that that something of outside can come in and like survive alongside us and that it's not just a static cold space. I feel the same way. I I very much love being outside and so like you're saying just kind of removing that barrier a little bit. I think uh feels really good and no pun intended, but maybe gets us back to our roots a little bit. Um, just having green things around us. And then so much of your poems, I mean, I said this before, but I feel like, you know, looking at the room upside down, this idea about like changing perspective or seeing things from, you know, through the mirror's reflection, moving through the house without looking where you're going. Do you have a sense of thinking about spaces in that way? Or like, like seeking new experiences of spaces or um, how does that kind of thing come to you? Yeah, I, th I think that I've, I'm always interested in perspective and I am often um, just really observing the space around me, whether it's interior or exterior. And so I think, I don't, I, I think I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that a space can change so much, even though it's, it's technically the same space. Um, you know, depending on the lighting or who's in a room or what has just happened there. Um, you know, there's different kinds of tensions or moods or, or what have you. And so, yeah, I think I am kind of seeking that out and, and maybe seeing how we as individuals are inflected or reflected in the spaces around us and, and vice versa. And kind of how do we impact our space? How does our space impact us? Uh, who am I when I'm in a different space? Uh, when I don't kind of have my, my stuff around me? Um, so those those ideas of like the places we come from, the places we inhabit and 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 selfhood, I think kind of those the intermingling of those are always of interest to me. Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons that like reading your book during this quarantine has been like so impactful for me, because at the same time, I've been seeing a lot of people online, like almost experiencing their houses for the first time, the sort of sense of folks who you know spend all of their time at work are now suddenly like digging through their attics and finding things that they forgot that they had and posting pictures of their rooms from odd angles and saying like oh i never knew that the light came through this window in this way or i never knew that that stairway kind of looked like that from this perspective and how have i lived in this house for so long and never known about you know where i am or what i'm doing here because i've never been forced to encounter it in that sort of intense fashion yeah I, I mean i think th yeah those things are always there but it's just do we notice them do we take the time do we have the time um and i think it's not just uh, the spaces that we're in but the people around us you know so yeah if you're used to being in separate spaces from a spouse or a partner or your kids every day and then all of a sudden you're all together in the same space it's like oh wow yeah you you do do this all the time or i do react that way or you know just all of those little things that um, you might not encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. And in your poetry is, is, a, is about encounter in a lot of ways, or there's a lot of that kind of encounters with 
identity, memory, strange sorts of happenings that, that one doesn't expect. I think, I wonder if you could read another poem for us, someone else's house, because that's, that's one where you're thinking about, as you do in other pieces, what you encounter that isn't in a room or what, you know, what might have a lingering presence. Sure. Yeah. This is someone else's house. Their photographs, their art, their quirky cats and crumbs from a last hurried meal. Not my watch, not my clock ticking syncopated time, not my train trundling through town, its vertebrae glimpsed from this house on a hill. Nobody's train, nobody's magpie, nobody's mountains circling round with their sun and snow, their great blue shadows of moving clouds. How strange it is to be here with you, hearing you in the next room. I expect you to reappear as someone else, or me to be not me now, but myself as I was or will be. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Kristen Brace discussing poetry in her latest book, Toward the Wild Mundans. Yeah, I, I love the sort of weird sense of haunting in that piece. Um, someone else's house, you know, that someone else has made the decisions about what's on the walls, what's happening in another room is sort of unknown to you, and there's a great potential for change at any minute. Yeah, I think I, I was exploring that sense of um, just of dislocation and, and of haunting. I, I haven't thought of that word in relation to this poem, but it's a space haunted by someone else and their stuff. And um, kind of like I was saying before, like when you're not when you're not in your own space, you're not with your own stuff, kind of who are you and, and who have you become? Um, so I just, I, I was playing with the idea of, I guess, where do we belong and what and to whom do we belong? And sort of that sense of um, being disconnected, not only from what's familiar, but perhaps even from ourselves. And I think traveling can do that a lot or just um, being in bizarre and new situations can do that to us. And I think it's I think it's a healthy space to be in sometimes, not not permanently, because it's good to feel kind of grounded and and you know in your own shoes. But I think it also helps again shake up our perspectives and just kind of look at things differently. Let's new thoughts and ideas in, which is really important. Yeah, I agree. I, one of the things that in the book prompts that sort of recognition or consideration a lot is painting, you, and especially impressionist painting. Yes. Yeah. I love visual art of all kinds. And I'm especially drawn to the impressionist. Um, I think an impressionist uh, painting um, that has a lot of white in it is something that always draws me in because it's the color white is evoked through all these different colors. Maybe there's a little actual white in there, but it's all these different colors. And so it really makes you think about light and color and how we experience the world around us visually in different ways. And I don't know, I guess it's one of those things, again, that I, I'm just enthralled with, sort of the self reflecting what the self is looking at and vice versa, um, art reflecting life, life reflecting art, and kind of seeing ourselves in that, but also looking at a piece of art and not knowing anything about it, maybe, but making up stories about, um, you know, what's happening in that painting or what happened to the artist that painted it. And, and I think maybe, again, it comes down to connection and, and feeling that connection with humanity or um, another character, if you will. 
that meditation, you, you did a little meditation on the color white in, in your response there. And I, I find that so interesting. And it's, it's really fitting with the way that the book works, because there's so much about light in the book. And light is such a difficult thing to talk about. Like, how does one talk about light without resorting to the sort of you know, romantic tropes about the rosy dawn and all of that sort of like grandiose poetic language um, or just saying, you know, the light is very bright or whatever we say in everyday speech. But you have this interesting way of talking about light at a slant or as you as you were saying about the color white, like it's constructed by the way that things around it are constructed and that's what helps us to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just that the the give and take of of light and color and the the interplay of different objects and um, the way we experience them um, is really interesting to me. Do you have favorite impressionist painters? I I like a lot. I like um, uh, I'm, I most so many of them are French and I don't speak French, so I will not say their names correctly. But Berta Morisot and Mary Cassatt, Edgar Degas, uh, Vuillard. I also like Bonnard, um, although, you know, I think I like his exuberance and his color. There are certain things I look at and think, wow, you really haven't studied form, have you? <laughs> um, but I just, I, I don't know. I think there's like a, a, a levity and a playfulness to the way um, Impressionist painters captured their subjects just because a lot of it was done quickly, at least at first, um, to, of course, capture the impression of what they were seeing. So I think I like that immediacy rather than a very, like, studied approach. When, when did you discover Impressionism? Oh, that's hard to say. I have always loved art, and um, I took a couple art classes in high school and, you know, had art in school growing up, I, like a lot of kids don't today, so I feel very lucky for that. And I checked out books from the library on art a lot. So I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of been in my psyche for a long time, I might, I might say. Do, do you want to read uh, My Life as an Impressionist Painting? I would love to. My Life as an Impressionist Painting. Pay attention to the light. The way light is always expressed through color. Because even a magic paintbrush cannot drip with light. Light is the lemon yellow, chartreuse, grass green and sage playing in the emerald leaves. It's the silver sheen on the fence post and the gold spun into my hair. It's the tinge of posy pink on this cheek, this arm, this shoulder. Color is health and light is life. See how I'm outdoors in the long grass near the edge of a wood. See the gently sloping land and high cloud whisper sky. Lower at the horizon, the clouds plod along like sheep in need of shearing. Believe that beyond my hill is another, and then another, not quite so high, that dips into a cool river running with a music all its own. Trout swim the river, iridescent muscled flesh propelled by bony tails the surface broken by dorsal fins, light tossed outward, downward, through the dappled water to splatter sand below. How is this my life, you ask? Because I've just imagined myself a fish, taking refuge in the undulating reeds, 
finding delight in the water coursing over my supple, scaled body. Can't you see it in my face? The way my eyes are half-squinted toward the farthest dreaming hill, my chin tilted toward the wild abundance of the earth. And the other half of my vision is turned inward, lungs become gills in the distant river. Notice the way I was smiling just before the brush could conjure my lips. Thank you. I love about that poem that it brings together so many of the things that we're talking about, like imagination, nature as like something that can be encountered, but can also be imagined as something that can be encountered and the way that it's all mediated by the sort of attempt to capture light in paint. Yeah, I think it is sort of a confluence. I, I put it at the center of the book, hoping that it would sort of tie things together. It also happens to hold the, the title of the book in its, <laughs> in its lines. But I think, I don't know, I, um, it kind of like the first poem in the book harkens back to a, a, a childhood speaker. I hope to always have a sense of wonder and um, that children often have. And that I think comes into play with the the sense of imagination and imagining that you're a fish and, you know, kind of diving inside this painting and exploring what that, that world is like, sort of like a dashing into the, the wardrobe and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. So yeah, I think for me, art and, and the imagination come into my art, into my work a lot, just because it's, it's sort of a conversation. It's a way to exercise my creative muscles and um, again, just like have that connection with the wider world. I spend a lot of time at my desk. So <laughs> being able to kind of reach out in that way, even if it's in my head, it feels, feels good. And it also belongs to, in a sort of slant way to tradition of ekphrastic poems, right? Like you're not reflecting on a particular painting, but a sort of style of painting. Um, the relationship between, you know, spoken uh, or written art form and a painted one. Do you have um, poets that you go to, North Stars, people that you um, can't live without or that you, whose work you, is really important to you? Um, yes. And this is the part of an interview where I always kind of freeze because there's so many of them that I feel like when I list just a couple, I'm really like, you know, betraying the ones that I leave out. So I'll just, I'll tell you right now, I have some poetry sitting nearby by Mary Oliver, Tess Gallagher, and Marina Svateva. But I, yes, so there's so many poets. I'm sorry, that's all, that's the best answer I can give you. <laughs> I, I was I was sort of wondering if Mary Oliver might not appear on the list because you the the sensibilities are very similar or the approach to you know thinking the self through encounters with nature is something that I think you share with her. Thank you. Even to be considered uh, to share something with her is a compliment. I think. Um, yeah, I definitely I I love being in nature and I love Mary Oliver's work just just for that. Um, she, she can write such a joyful poem without it being sentimental in any way. It's always fresh. And so, yeah, she is definitely an inspiration. There's a poem in the book uh, called A Pomegranate, A Rhyming Couplet, mm -hmm. which has a very sort of Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve feel to mm -hmm. it. Uh, and, your first, and your first chapbook is called Fence, Patio, Blessed Virgin. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, do you have a particular religious history or relationship to religion? I, so I was raised Catholic, 
um, and then kind of branched out to different different denominations from there. I'm not technically practicing anything now. I'm more of a, I, I would consider myself spiritual more than religious, but particularly with the, the chat book, Fence Patio, Blessed Virgin, that is uh, about my grandmother who passed away four years ago now. And she was very Catholic, very rooted in the Catholic church. And so that, that title comes from, from that part of my, my family culture and the memories of going to mass together and, and things like that. Yeah. It, I mean, that's, that's a, th- I was also raised loosely. We were, we were holiday Catholics and my grandparents are, um, my grandparents are probably not dissimilar from yours. Very, you know, devout in terms of they go and that's where their reading material comes from. And that's, you know, what they think about a lot. Um, and I just wondered about, you know, for so many people who take the writing of poetry very seriously, just as a sort of crass example, I'm thinking of T.S. Eliot, it, the, the two impulses tend to collide somewhere along the way. Um, whether you think of yourself as religious or not, I wonder if you know, the writing and reading of poetry is, is part of your spiritual practice? I think now that it is, because I'm not, um, I'm not religious in the way that I previously was. So yeah, it is, it's being in tune with myself and the world and whatever is out there um, in a way that for me feels very personal because it's how I express myself and how I feel most present and so I think that makes me feel able to connect with God the world the universe what have you in a way that um, maybe other mediums don't allow me to so yeah. Um, You mentioned earlier on the degree to which poetry is allowed for or that you're a part of the poetry community that you have you know friends who are doing readings and online workshops and participating in you know things going on in the in the literary community yeah yes and that definitely because i think you know when you're if you're part of a a church or other faith community you you have that sort of built-in structure of community and everyone kind of knows um how they relate to one another and that can find connection there. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for a lot of us, finding that community and that connection in poetry or literature is, is really important because we all need that somewhere. And I think I maybe kind of mentioned this earlier, but for, it feels like there's so many levels of that connection within when you're reading poetry or a, a novel, um, because it's not just the, it's the content of the, the work itself, but also how you share that and interact with other people. Um, and that can be really life-changing and really life-affirming, I think, too. Mm. Do you have an example of how sharing work has changed your life? Ooh, well, I guess it, it depends a little bit if it's if my own work or other people's work. When I was in my MFA program, I think that the work, when I shared work that was like most personal, not necessarily about me, but what I was just really, I felt really strongly about and really connected to. When I shared that work and got feedback on it, I think that is is life-changing in, in an in a internal way, just because I received affirmation and also ways to move forward in my own work that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and But it's hard to, it's hard to share your creative work with, or any kind of work like that with other people, especially when you're really attached to it. But 
that's the one of the steps to moving forward with it. So what what about sharing the work of others? Yeah, I think is just um being able to relate to other people, but also getting to know other people better. I have this, like I mentioned, this small poetry group that I'm part of, and it's just interesting to have conversations around the poems that different people choose because, you know, we're all choosing the poems that we share for a reason. So it's maybe reflecting a life experience that that friend has had or, you know, something they've been really wrestling with or, or whatever it might be, but it kind of, it, it can be a, a doorway into deepening the friendship and understanding each other better. I love poetry for that reason. Or it can be it can be people who don't necessarily like poetry that much or think that they, they don't like it, um, but they read something and think, oh, wow, maybe I could get into this poetry thing. Like that really, that really makes me think of my great uncle or my best friend or whoever that passed away and um, can, can start a conversation in that way. So I've had that with, with people reading uh, my own work too, just thinking, that they didn't like poetry, but because they know me, they, they're kind enough to read it. And then that has opened up some conversations too that I, I didn't really anticipate. So it's been exciting. Would you share one last poem before we run out of time? I would love to. This is called Sometimes Pink Clematis Climbing, and the title runs into the poem itself. Sometimes Pink Clematis Climbing, a pocked power line pole, is enough to make me cry. I did cry when they cut down the maple bordering our rental property and the neighbor's backyard. 8 a.m. and the sawing and grinding of tree flesh, the apocalyptic crunch and thud of machinery, trucks rumbling up and down the drive. I showered, packed a lunch behind closed blinds, fled through the front door and didn't look back. After work, I crouched by the carnage and counted rings. Scent of gasoline and sawdust ripe in the trampled dirt. The cross-section was scarred by the saw, and I had to jump from decade to decade in search of something legible. One hundred years old. Once hidden houses gape. One hundred years old. Forget learning from leaves as from books. Read euthanasia for trees. And what of the cardinal pear that nested there in its branches? The tottering baby skunks whose mother lay flattened on the street that waddled and chirped at the hearth of the maple's mellow heart when they tired of eating ants between parked cars. Ours is a privileged existence. One hundred years of hush. One hundred years of no harm. One hundred years here growing and giving its living shade. A century of solace gone in the unthinking clatter of a Thursday morning. Now I see sky where once I thrummed in the mad green quiet of photosynthesis, always giving of itself. Sky unrolls the thunder that smooths my face, lends me shards of lightning when I have no words. Such a lovely poem. Thank you. You know, we've all been, again, not to harp on the quarantine, but I think another thing that's been happening is um, everyone is out walking around in their neighborhoods. And a tree stump is the kind of thing that one gives little thought to. Uh, and I th we both live in Michigan. Is that right? Yes. Yep. One of the things that I love about Michigan is it's so forested. I mean, it's covered with trees. MSU's campus is, is hugely um, 
hugely covered with trees. Uh, and it gives me such joy to go there and see them and be among, you know, these old persons. And, uh, I was walking through my neighborhood and I noticed that someone who just bought one of the houses cut down these three very old trees in front of it. And I thought, why would you ever do that? You know, like what, what would be the purpose of that? They weren't, they weren't threatening to fall on the house. They weren't dying. It was just an aesthetic decision. They didn't want to rake up the leaves or whatever. And the, this poem does such a great job of tracing the repercussions of something, you know, that thoughtless act or that sort of very small, you know, I will just chop it down. But it has even in a, you know, suburban sort of uh, isolated setting, it has its own like set of repercussions. Creatures who nested there now can no longer do so. Um, the neighborhood is entirely different than it was before. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even get the, um, you know, what a, a feature you can do for a city with, um, you know, keeping it cooler in the summer and um, helping the water run off and all kinds of things. But um, yeah, I'm kind of a tree freak. Yeah. I occasionally hug them. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> I don't think there's any shame in occasionally hugging a tree. I, no. I just hope they appreciate it. It's probably good for one's, you know, one's own sense of of connection to nature. Absolutely. Do you, um, like so many of the poems are about connecting to nature in some way or other. Do you, could you talk a little bit about your relationship to nature? Like what, what kinds of things are you um, able to do or do you want to do when you're not at your desk? Yeah, I just, I love being outside. And uh, for the last year, my husband and I have lived in a wooded neighborhood and we have some woods behind our house. So before it gets too overgrown, I've been going back in the woods and tromping around in big rubber boots. And I found a deer skull the other day and all kinds of little green things starting to pop up under the leaves. Um, but I just love being outside and, and seeing what nature has to offer. There's always something new to see and um, just new beauty everywhere. So yeah, I like to, I love walking. Um, I love going to Lake Michigan, although the beaches have been shrinking uh, drastically in the last few years. I love biking, just just being outside camping. There's nothing like, you know, bacon and eggs over a campfire in the morning. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have had um, early exposure to, to nature and, you know, woods and the beach and all of that. Uh, both of my parents really love to be outside as well. So I think it's just kind of embedded in, in who I am. Yeah. And it shows, and I mean, the book is called Toward the Wild Abundance and it shows you know, throughout the volume. Do you think of, you know, you, you think of writers like Mary Oliver, who you mentioned, um, and, and, and countless others, do you think of yourself as doing nature writing in any like targeted fashion? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I really have never thought of that. I think it's just so much a part of who I am and what's like in my mind and what I care about uh, on a day-to-day -day basis that I've never thought of it like that. It's just what kind of what comes out when I put pen to paper. But I do, I do think if I were to ever move in a more journalistic or sort of advocacy, advocacy direction with my writing, that it could be to work on environmental issues, um, whether it's preserving Lake Michigan and the, the Great Lakes or, or woodlands or, or whatever. 
on that note, do you have uh, projects in process, pieces appearing in upcoming volumes, anything on the horizon to look out for? Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a, a dry spell as far as anything being accepted for publication at the moment. But I'm writing away, writing lots more poems and um, some sort of as yet, I don't want to say formless, but some very just raw, fresh writing that hasn't quite found its its uh, genre even necessarily in some cases. But some things I'm excited about, some some uh, fresh writing that I started earlier this year that um, I'll have plenty to work on no matter how long this quarantine is. Well, I, I hesitate to say that maybe that's one of the good things about this quarantine, but I sure hope that it does uh, result in another another volume or some more publications uh, because I've really enjoyed um, getting to know your book and this conversation. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed it too. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Kristen Brace's book, Toward the Wild Abundance, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find her at kristenbrace.com. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Madiha Kos, Dante Smith, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press, especially Elise Jajuga and Julie Riem, for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.